I think that with the increased restrictions and the continued struggle of dealing with COVID that this particular Mother's Day is probably a day where resilience is an important topic. I have chosen to step out of the Sermon on the Mount series and speak on resilience today because I actually see in mothers an example for all of us of really remarkable resilience repeated again and again and again. And it's not just in the act of giving birth. Um, When our twins were born, I had drugs before Karen, and I finished the day on the floor of the operating room with both my kids next to me. Karen got wheeled off, and I was there with the kids, and she was like, what? See, resilience comes in all shapes and sizes. Last summer, I lost my key fob, so the thing that starts my car. And it was a lesson in resilience for me. Author Tish Warren tells a story of losing her keys. And she tells the story, and often when we have these kind of moments, not the big moments, but these little moments, these often the ones that get in and underneath our armor and the ones that actually cause us the most challenge. She says, it starts with logic. Where was I last? Where did I go? Where did I put my stuff down? And then it goes to self-condemnation. Oh, I'm so dumb. I'm such a stupid person. I'm an idiot. All those terribly self-recriminating words that we ought not to say about anyone, but especially about ourselves. And then we go to vexation. We start cursing our children and our spouses. They must have moved it. I hate it when they move my stuff, often said in my house. Then we go to desperation, and we start looking in places that we wouldn't normally look. We haven't been in that room in weeks, but we go in there to look for this key because we can't find it. Then we move to last ditch. That's when we actually stop and ask God to find our key. And then we move to despair. And that's that a moment where we're just totally racked with a sense of guilt and shame and loss, and it's a silly set of keys. Tish calls this an apocalypse. An apocalypse is an unveiling or an uncovering. And in those moments when we are most racked with frustration, when we're most challenged by an event in our day, it's often the little ones that are the ones that cause us to struggle deepest. Last week we talked about heart issues. I think it's the lost keys that are some of our biggest clues to where heart issues lie. And I've come to believe that resilience is not the absence of difficult emotions, but resilience is the ability to remain singing while we cry. I'll say that again. Resilience is not the absence of difficult, challenging, frustrating, uncomfortable feelings and emotions. But it's the ability to remain singing 
in the midst of all of our tears. Paul says it this way in Philippians, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. We're in the midst of COVID-19. I was saying to the team this morning that there is a resilience that I see in our church. 14 months ago when I was told we could only have 15 people in the room, the doors had to be shut, we went into panic mode. We were quickly trying to figure out technology. We gathered together a group that made every effort to try and figure out how to do the stream, how to do worship. Lisa was recording songs in her bathroom. We were trying to figure it out day by day by day. And this morning, we just came to the church and did our jobs. After 14 months, we're not getting worse. We're getting better. Absolutely. It is to be affirmed and we need to turn the glory back to God for keeping this community safe, for keeping this community together, and for keeping this community resilient. And yes, we have tears, but in the tears we remain singing. Now this is Mother's Day. And so I want to talk this morning about one of the mothers in Scripture who... I think we often forget because we lose sight of her life in the shadow of her son. And I'm not talking about Mary. I'm talking about Hannah. You see, Hannah was husband to a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuth in the hill country of Ephraim. He was the son of Jerome, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth of Ephraim. This dude was an important dude. He had two wives, Hannah and Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah did not. And that's where we are opened up to this life of this woman, Hannah, who in, in the ancient Near East reality of infertility was dealing with this idea of a divine curse. Not having children for her wasn't just, eh, I get to have more parties. It challenged her very purpose in life. What she felt was her God call, and she couldn't have children. See, children for women in her day were more than just pride or shame. They were their well-being who would look after them in the event that the problem happened between her and her husband, death or divorce. And so persistent infertility brought shame, but it also brought brought with it a precarious life. Each year, Elkanah would travel to Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of Heaven and the Lord of Heaven's armies at the tabernacle. The priests of the Lord at the time were the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. On the days Elkanah presented his sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to Penina and each of her children. And though he loved Hannah, 
he would give her only one choice portion because the Lord had given her no children. So we see here that Elkanah has this deep love for his wife. She was probably his first wife. And because she couldn't give him children, he then went and married a second wife. So this shame is deeply intensified for her because she can't meet the needs of her husband. Now it's interesting, in, in, in some translations, it actually states that he loved Hannah so much he gave her a double portion. Either way, whether it's the single portion or double portion, she was given the choice piece of meat. So there's a deep love between this husband and this wife. And nowhere in this passage does it state that he loved his second wife. And so you can just get this sense that in the midst of this household, there is potential for a significant amount of turmoil and disruption. So it goes on to say, so Penina would taunt Hannah. And you can imagine why. You've given your husband children. You're the second wife. You're clearly in a second position. You don't really even think your husband loves you. And you have this hostile adversarial relationship with this other woman. And so she would make fun of her because the Lord had kept her from having children. Year after year, there was the same, it was the same. Panina would taunt Hannah as they went to the tabernacle. Each time, Hannah would be reduced to tears and would not even eat. Why are you crying, Hannah? Elkina would ask. Why aren't you eating? Why be downhearted just because you have no children? You have me. Isn't that better than having ten sons, husbands? Not the right answer. If you take nothing away from this sermon this morning, take this. You are not worth more than ten sons to your spouse. Period. You see, he deeply misunderstood her pain. It was a particularly stupid thing to say. Because he doesn't get it. And it shows that he's a little obtuse. And he's allowing this to go on inside his family. And he probably made the decision to bring Panina into his life because he's a person of financial means. Why do we know this? Not just any family could make the annual trip to Shiloh with their entire tribe. That costs bucks. So this man has wealth. He has privilege. He has power. He comes from a pretty prestigious lineage. But he has a barren wife who he loves. She's suffering embarrassment and shame. And she sees this other wife is providing for her husband. It's a story that we see repeated in Scripture in Hagar and Sarah, in Bilhah and Rachel, and now again in Hannah and Panina. So Elkanah's future isn't going to be 
in the offspring of his beloved, but in this other woman. And his favorite wife is left in the margins. I think there's intense pain here. I think there's intense pain for both women. I don't imagine this was a particularly happy household. And it gets to the point where Hannah just can no longer tolerate all that's happening. Once after a sacrificial meal at Shiloh, Hannah got up and went to pray. Eli the priest was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Some translations say sitting at, the, at his seat. Pay attention to that. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime, and as a sign that he has been dedicated to the Lord, his hair will never be cut. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he, had, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk? Hannah's misunderstood once again by a priest. He demanded, throw away your wine. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger. But I am very discouraged. And I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I'm a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. In that case, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you the request that you have asked of him. Finally, this dude wakes up. Oh, thank you, sir, she exclaimed. Then she went back and began to eat again, and she was no longer sad. So we see this pivotal point in the narrative. Hannah gets to the end of herself, and she just has had enough. And so she walks into the temple, and then she just pours out her, God, her, her, her heart before God. You could argue she's actually bargaining with God. She's saying, if you, I will do this if you do this. She is desperate enough to even say, if you give me this child, I will give this child right back to you. I don't even need to keep this child. I just want to have a child. So Eli blesses her. And it says her face was no longer downcast. And I think there's a telling contrast between the Hannah who was too despondent to eat and the Hannah who emerges from God's presence. She's full of hope and confidence, and she believes that her circumstances have changed. Nothing is any different for her. She's not pregnant. She doesn't have a boy or a girl. She doesn't have a different relationship with her husband or her, or her rival wife, his rival wife. But she comes out filled with a peace that leaves her elated. And so she's able to return to her family. But let's look at Eli. Eli makes a terrible mistake. The person that she was supposed to trust, the person who was supposed to see her need, the person who was supposed to minister to her in that moment, missed his call. Now I can imagine some of this 
is because a lot of things are going on in Shiloh at the time. We know that his sons in the next chapter were bad, really bad. We also know that Eli couldn't hear God. Go to chapter 3 and Samuel hears God. Eli doesn't hear God. Eli is so tuned out to what's going on, it takes him several times to figure out that Samuel's hearing God. We're not talking about a guy that's connected here. He failed her miserably, and his deficiency was in spiritual discernment. But he still remained faithful to his priestly tasks. And there's an ironic twist that's happening here. Eli is representing the corrupt and apostate leadership of the priesthood. And Hannah is representing the simple faith that comes from one who suffers. He was meant to be the spiritual leader of the nation. And he couldn't even see that this woman was struggling. And he was sitting by his seat at the doorpost. And the Hebrew here is throne. You see, what God is alluding to here is he's about to change everything. In this anguish from a woman who is barren, God not only wants to meet her needs, God not only reaches down and changes her life, God's about to do a regime change. So in the midst of her struggle, in the midst of her overwhelming need, in the midst of her inability to see past her problems, God does something phenomenal. He's about to change the trajectory of the world. You see, that I think is often what we get into. And I think this is one of the key pieces to resilience. If we can stop for a moment when we're, when we're in the midst of those deep, deep struggles, or whether it be just, I've lost my key fob, can we not put God as the last ditch, but as the first response? And in doing so, can we say, God, everything looks bleak right now, but I believe you're going to do something miraculous. I believe through my pain, you're going to change the world. It might not be like Hannah in the birth of Samuel, who led to the first kings that became the one who found David, who led to the prototype for Christ, which died and, 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 and took everything about this world and changed it. We can trace from Hannah's prayer all the way to our life today. The faithfulness of this barren woman was used to change the trajectory of the world. It's no wonder that Hannah got up and was able to maintain a composure so different. See, Hannah had faith. Hannah could see something that the rest of us can't see. So she goes home. God remembers her, it says. She gets pregnant. She has a son. She names him Samuel, which means his, God, his name is El. She's referring this to God. She is acknowledging this child is from God. And so she's connecting meaning to his life. But she doesn't stop there. She decides she's going to wean this child. So about a period of three years, 
And then she says to her husband, I'm going to take him back. Jumping down to verse 24, when the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. They brought along a three-year-old bull, some translations say three bulls, for the sacrifice and a basket of flour and some wine. After sacrificing the bull or bulls, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I am the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy and he has granted my request. Now I am giving him to the Lord and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. So Hannah completes her sacrifice. She completes her vow and she gives Samuel to Eli. And then she returns home. I can't even imagine how excruciatingly painful that would have been. After waiting and waiting and waiting and then having your prayer answered in such a profound way and then having two or three years with this child close to you, you then, in faith, give the child back. If that's not resilience, I don't know what is. If that's not an example of how mothers show us what it means to be faithful, I don't know what is. It is a profound act of sacrifice and self-denial. And it is a profound moment in the life of Samuel, in the life of Israel, and in our lives. So how do we live this story? Certainly at the time Samuel was born, it was a very, very dark period. There's two stories in Judges, one about a sanctuary being robbed of its idols and a priest being taken, and the second one on the civil war with Benjamin because of the, the sexual assault of a woman who was traveling. We're not talking about a safe place. This is a place where God had been pushed out by the people. It was a dark time in Israel's history. They were about to ask for a king. But in the midst of that darkness, in the life of Hannah, we see God still at work. Some of us feel with COVID-19, we're in a dark time. Now, we have varying opinions on what that means, but I think we all agree our world right now is not having a party. But see, if we live this story the way Hannah's lived this story, we get to say, you're still at work. Jesus, you are alive today, and you are active in my life, in the lives of my brothers and sisters, in the life of this church, in the city, province, country, and world. You have not been in any way hampered by what is going on, and what we are suffering through today, we can live in the hope that it's going to do something miraculous at some point in the future. We are caught in larger geopolitical realities that exceed our own ability to manage or control. In meeting Hannah's needs, God also met the needs of the wider society and ultimately through Christ, the needs of all creation. 
We don't know if the struggle that we are currently having is the very thing God is going to use to change the life of another person, another place, or even change the trajectory of a society. We simply don't know. But we have a choice. We can be Hannah or we can be Eli. We can be the ones who let down others because we simply cannot discern. We've shut ourselves off to what God wants to do. We are so closed off to the movement of the Spirit that we think that what's happening right now is everything and God's looking at us and saying, it's nothing. And I'm guilty of this. So I do not point fingers at anyone. I have found myself through this last 14 months in moments where I've sat there and just felt dejected. Where I felt that this is awful. Where I've struggled with things that have just overwhelmed me and I've missed what God is doing. I am guilty of being Eli probably far more than being Hannah. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus is always calling us back to him. There's this, this thing in Scripture that, or not in Scripture, sorry, in, in, in our common lexicon that says, God is a God of the needy and the powerless. God helps those who help themselves, we often say. But really the Bible, what it says is God helps those who cannot help themselves. And the story of Hannah serves as a reminder for us how God can and does come to the aid of those who are truly in need. She's alone in her pain, and this pain has driven her to her knees, and she comes before God. Scholars have actually coined a phrase that says God's preferential option is for the poor. And it describes this phenomenon that seems to present itself throughout Scripture that God seems to be partial towards the poor and the needy. Now, this does not suggest that God does not love all people. And we see this in Scripture that not everyone He helps is poor. God showed mercy on rich people like Abraham, tax collectors, and even on fishermen like Levi and Peter. He did so at the same time that he was helping the poor, the blind, and the lame. But we do see that God shows special care and interest for those who are weak, for the downtrodden, for the vulnerable. It's such a profound moment when Mary says, God has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and He has sent the rich away empty. James writes, Listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He has promised to those who love Him? Even Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord claiming the words of Isaiah is on me because He anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recover the sight for the blind, to set the, opposite, the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There is no doubt 
that God has love for the poor. But you see, there's good news for us. Hannah wasn't poor. Hannah belonged to a family who was wealthy. The fact is that the frequent pilgrimages and the gifts that they brought to Shiloh show us that God was paying attention to someone who was the wife of a very wealthy man. Yet despite all the earthly provisions, Hannah wasn't privileged. She had a need and she was powerless to change her particular situation. God heard her cry and answered her prayer. So this is, I think, the good news for us. I think a better understanding of God is not that He has a preferential option for the poor, but rather that He has a preferential option for those who acknowledge their poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, we heard a few weeks ago. When we're in these moments, when we realize through our struggle that we have an utter dependence on God, it's at that moment that that deep love for the poor that God has descends and lands and covers us and embraces us. Hannah's story is a story of one who poured out their their pain and their anguish before God and God reached down and embraced her. She bargained with him. And sometimes we struggle with this idea of bargaining with God. But you see, God is saying, I want to have an authentic relationship with you. Pour it out. Tell me what you need to tell me. Don't worry if it sounds a little bit bitter. Don't worry if it sounds like a bargain. Don't worry if it's perfect enough to be preached on Sunday morning. Just pour out your heart. If you love me enough to trust me with the deepest things, we're going to be fine. You see, God wants us to ask those deep, deep heart struggles. Matthew 21, 22 says, You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you will receive it. See, God's calling us to be bold. God's God's calling us to pour out before Him, and He promises us that He will hear us. Hannah's motives may have been mixed, but her request was in line with a God who loves and wants to reach out and bless his children. The Apostle Paul says it this way, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Thus Paul could say, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So in these moments, we've lost our keys or we're struggling with workplace issues or relational breakdowns or sickness or anything that causes us to struggle, allow it to be an apocalypse. Allow it to reveal to you those deepest issues of your heart and then pour those out before God. Kathy's call to worship this morning was Hannah's song. Then Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. 
The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. What Hannah teaches us is that in these moments of our deepest pain, it's where we find our relationship with Jesus in its deepest joy. This isn't fake. It's not an act we put on to convince ourselves or others, but a genuine sense of the goodness of God in the midst of the turmoil of our lives. We've just had increased turmoil placed on us. The third wave of COVID is buffeting our society. And there, are in, there is an increase in both small and large struggles in our city, in our families, and in our church. And so we remember, resilience is not an absence of difficult emotion. Resilience is the ability to remain singing while we cry. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of Hannah to pour out her heart before you to show us what it means to be one of your people in the midst of pain and suffering. As a mother, as a woman, as a child of God, she showed a remarkable resilience and an ability to sing through her tears. Lord, I pray that you would give that to us today. That we would be brought to the place where we feel your presence so deeply in the darkness and in the light that regardless of what the emotions we are experiencing at the moment, joy or pain, that we could sing out before you and with one another. Lord, you are good. Whether it's moments where we've lost our keys or we've lost a loved one, we know you're present. Help us to walk that walk that Hannah showed us so many years ago. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit.